thank you, Steve, for that wonderful uh, introduction. Your check is in the mail. Um, and by the way, um, I, I came here and found out that his name was Shombi. Um I've always known him as Steve, so if I call him Steve, I'm with, and you know him as Shomi, we're talking about the same person. So, um, But I want to also thank uh, Pastor Moss for the great opportunity to to preach to the um, congregation that you, that the Lord has allowed you to shepherd. This is a great honor um, and an honor that I don't take lightly. It's always a great thing when, when you're invited to speak and to preach to God's people um, and that uh, the shepherd of the household entrusts you to deliver the word of God to his people. So thank you once again for that. And one more thing, um, for the brother who I was told might stand up during my message, um, realize that it's okay because I come from a church background where whenever you say something profound in the message, the preachers usually stand up anyway. So, so if you stand up, I'll just say, okay, he took something from it that, that really moved him. So feel free, brother. I just <laughs> wanted to share that with you. Amen. Amen. Everyone's doing okay? Amen. Um, let me have you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. And we're going to look at one verse, verse 44. John chapter 6, verse 44. Once again, that's John chapter 6, verse 44. You'll hear some pages turning. John chapter 6, verse 44. This is God's holy word. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. May the Lord had a blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. If you will, please join with me in a word of prayer. Dear most gracious Father, once again it is such a joy to be amongst the body, Lord, be amongst the saints, Lord, those whom you have redeemed and have set apart by grace and through faith in Christ. Father, we thank you for this privilege of worshiping this morning and 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 giving something back to you, Lord, for for all the things that you have done for us, but at the same time receiving from you, Lord, the graces that we need, Lord, to continue day by day, to be reminded of the great gospel by which we believe. And, and Father, we thank you for the, the singing that we've done earlier, uh, the giving. We thank you for the time of, of, of just uh, the short time of fellowship with the saints. We thank you also for uh, the Bible um, verses, Lord, that need to be memorized, Lord. All of these things, Lord, are building our faith in you. And now as we come to this preached time, Lord, we are your people and we need to hear from you tonight, today. Lord, so speak through me, Lord. Decrease me and increase yourself, Lord. Help me to speak with boldness, with passion, with love, but also with tenderness, Lord. The same way that you deal with your people. 
And so, Father, we thank you and we ask your blessings upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you are a Christian who holds to the Reformed faith, you know that the doctrines of grace hold a special place in not only your understanding of Scripture, but within your heart. You love to hear them taught, you love to hear them preached, and you love to speak about them whenever the Lord opens an opportunity for you to do so. Because when it comes to these doctrines, there is a love that surpasses all understanding. However, in saying this, it is often easy to ignore the segment within the body of Christ who not only disagree with the reality of these doctrines, but also in some cases may mock them or would go as far as calling them evil or dark. But for example, I remember some time ago after watching um, that fairly new documentary on Calvinism that I placed a post on Facebook about how much I enjoyed watching it. And one of my Facebook friends, a pastor who proudly opposes the doctrines of grace, he made a comment that the only thing that two lips, and by the way, we'll see in a moment, that if you know anything about the doctrines of grace, it's generally known by the acronym TULIP, which is TULIP like the flower. But he said the only thing that two lips were good for were for kissing. And if we're being honest with ourselves, all of us who hold to these doctrines can truly testify to being in at least one situation in our Christian walk where we have dealt with a fellow brother or sister who have felt in a similar way. And sometimes these arguments which they present can sound so convincing that it may leave a doubt in some of our minds to the validity of these doctrines. Well, beloved, in light of all this, let me say up front that the reality of the doctrines of grace can be proven through Holy Scripture. They can be. And when we look at our text in John 6, we actually see an example of where one scripture highlights the entirety of the doctrines all within itself. So this is going to be our task today, to look at just verse 44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, and show not only the reality of the doctrines of grace within this verse, but also to remind ourselves of the comfort and joy which God gives through the truths they present. However, before we do this, I realize that it would be presumptuous of me to just assume that everyone actually knew what the doctrines of grace were. So to start this sermon, I want to give a brief overview of these doctrines so that we can have a clear guide to what we're looking for when we actually get into verse 44. So here we're going to start with a summary. Now, for those of us who are familiar with the doctrines of grace, we know again that they are commonly expressed in five points. And again, they are commonly remembered under the acronym TULIP, which I said a moment ago. Now, the first of these points, the T in TULIP, is called total depravity. It's called total depravity. And this teaches that when Adam sinned in the garden, he plunged all of his posterity, namely all of mankind, into sin. Thus, all of us who are born, all of us are born in sin and apart from salvation are under the command of sin. And because this is so, beloved, not only have we no desire for God, but we also don't understand why we should have a desire for God. Now, in making this statement, it's also important to keep in mind that when we say total depravity, we're not saying that we are as sinful as we can be. 
but rather what we are saying is that sin has affected us in our total being. In other words, in our mind, in our body, in our soul. And thus our appetites crave more for sinful pleasures over the things of God. So again, that's the T in Tulip, total depravity. Now the second point in the doctrines of grace is the U, the unconditional election. U stands for unconditional election. And this teaches that before the foundation of the world, God chose particular individuals for the purpose of salvation, not based on any decision which he saw them make towards him. Because remember, they're totally depraved. They wouldn't seek after God in that condition. But rather, he chose them based on his good pleasure and his sovereign will. Thus, unconditional election tells us that salvation is not only given by God, but it's also initiated by God, even before man was even created. And thus, that takes any room for boasting in, on man's part out of the equation. So again, that's the you in Tulip, unconditional election. Now, the third point is possibly the most controversial of the five. And it is the point called limited atonement. That's the L, limited atonement. And it teaches that in plain terms that Jesus's life, death and resurrection, watch this, was not intended for all people. But rather, it was particular in its purpose. That is, it was only for those whom God previously elected to save. Equally, it also teaches that the atonement of Christ was definite. And that's another name that that goes with a limited atonement, definite atonement, but it's better to have a two-lip instead of a two-dip, okay? In other words, the work of Christ accomplishes everything that the elect needs to be saved. In other words, it accomplishes their justification, their sanctification, their reconciliation, their obedience, etc. In short, Jesus' work was 100% effective in its design and purpose, and it was not wasted in any way. So again, that's the L in Tula, limited atonement. Now here's the fourth point in the doctrines of grace, the I, and that is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. And this teaches that all God has elected for salvation will, and I want you to hear what I'm about to say very closely here, will at the appointed time sovereignly declared by him, and that is very important, he will hear the outward call of the gospel message and by the inward working of the Holy Spirit in their hearts will respond to this call for the purpose of salvation. And again, this call will be 100% effective. It cannot and will not be resisted by the person in any way. In short, whom God wants to save ultimately will be saved because he is God and he has designed it to be that way. Okay, so again, that is the I in Tulip, irresistible grace. Now, lastly, the fifth point in the doctrines of grace is the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. The perseverance or the preservation of the saints. And this teaches that all who are saved by God will be saved. In other words, when one is saved, there is no way they can outmuscle out of the grace of God over them because God in his marvelous power will preserve them until the consummation of their salvation is accomplished. And they receive this glorification, which was promised through their trust in the atoning work of Christ. 
So again, these are the points that we are going to be looking at through verse 44. And now let's look at verse 34 and unpack these doctrines even more so that we can see the truth and the comfort that comes from them. Now, if you're taking notes and you didn't get all five of those points, obviously I will repeat them again. So as we go along, so you haven't missed nothing. Okay, (laughs) so let's look at verse 44 and we're going to start again with um, with total depravity first. But let's read it. Verse 44 reads, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, again, we're looking at this verse. We we see part of it that highlights total depravity. Now, again, Jesus says this, and I want to read the verse again, this time with emphasis. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there are three words and I emphasize them, three words that highlight the truth of total depravity. First, key into the word no one. That word denotes a universal negative. In short, no man, no woman, no child, no one. Secondly, we see the word can. And can highlights ability. In short, no one is able or has the ability to come to Jesus. And then thirdly, we see the word unless, which denotes a condition. Thus, we can read the verse like this. No one is able or has the ability to come to Jesus until or unless the condition is met that the father draws them. Everybody with me? And the reason why no one can do this, beloved, again, is because man is totally depraved. Because of our sin, we have no desire to seek after God. And thus, again, we don't understand our need to seek after him. The Apostle Paul, quoting from Psalm 14, put it this way in Romans chapter three, verse 11. He said, there are there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. And beloved, whenever I think about total depravity, it it makes me recall a situation um, some years back when I was asked to give the the eulogy for the funeral service of my cousin Ophelia, who sadly was murdered over in Pahokee, Florida, which is a small town about 40 minutes west of where uh, Jawara and I live. And needless to say, because of the circumstances surrounding that funeral, given the fact that she was murdered, there was a high amount of tension in that on that day there were people that were angry there were people that were confused there were people who were just shocked and I felt a need as I always do but I really felt a burning need because of this to go in there and really proclaim the gospel in that eulogy because people I mean even when they gave up and gave their their um, reflections there was a lot of anger there Okay, so in light of all of this, I felt this need to really proclaim the gospel. And I really felt excited about the message afterwards because I really feel like the spirit of God led me to do just that. However, as we were leaving the gravesite, I I was approached by a young lady who happened to be a friend of my cousin. 
and she complimented me on the message that I gave. And she went on to tell me how much she was moved by it. And, and she said that now she was inspired to do better in her life and to, and to change her living by giving up the things she was doing and, and to become a better person. And in hearing this, I, I responded with, well, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, you know, this was Saturday, so I was asking, so have you decided what church you want to go to? Do you know someone you can go to church with? And when I, she heard me say this, this is how she responded. Well, I don't think going to church is my flavor. I don't think it's my flavor, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to strive to do better than I am right now. And I immediately said to myself, what in my message made her think or come to that conclusion? Because it wasn't a moralistic message at all. It, it was gospel sin. I mean, what she was saying and what I preached was nowhere in the ballpark. Okay? But thinking back to this situation, it brought my mind to a scary thought. And that is, even in our weakest moments, even in our times of hopelessness, even in those times where our mortality is staring us right in the face, beloved, if God does not enable us to come to Christ for salvation, we will still have no desire for him, nor will we understand our need for him, despite the circumstances we're presently in. And beloved, this is why I don't think it's a coincidence that total depravity is the first point when we speak on the doctrines of grace. Because ultimately, in order for us to understand our need for grace, beloved, okay, to understand how amazing grace truly is, we have to first understand our condition apart from it. We have to understand that by nature, we follow the commands of sin. We have to understand by, by nature, we don't have the desire or understanding that we need from God. And we have to understand again that by nature we see no need to believe in the gospel message when it is presented to us. But rather, beloved, our nature reflects the words of the poem Invictus, in which the author says this, we are the master of our fates and the captain of our souls. So yes, beloved, in order to understand how beautiful grace truly is, we first have to understand that we are pretty much disgusting without it. And we not only see this when we under, and we only see this rather when we understand truly what the doctrine of total depravity teaches. However, beloved, when we do start to understand that doctrine, we can then marvel into the second point on the doctrines of grace, namely God's unconditional election. God's unconditional election. Again, let's look at verse 44. And again, I will read it with emphasis. No one can come to me, watch this, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, as we touched on in our last point, Jesus' statement here is very clear. It is God and God alone who draws men to Christ, because again, man by nature is totally depraved. He cannot nor will he want to come to Christ on his own. And because God has the sole power to draw men to Christ, this also implies, watch this, that he has the sole authority to choose whom he wants to draw to Christ. Okay? Now, in addition to this truth, we also notice in this verse 
that Jesus gives no conditions or reasons why God would draw a particular man to Christ over another. We don't see that. He just simply says that he will draw this man and these men will come to him. Now, beloved, when we connect this observation to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, namely that God chose particular individuals, quote, before the foundation of the world, it now becomes very obvious that his choice was not based on who a person is, what a person has, or what a person has done. And we know this, beloved, because when God initially chose these individuals, he hadn't even created them yet. He hadn't even created them yet. So this leads us to conclude that God's choice was basically solely on his sovereign will and his sovereign pleasure. Now, without question, the best known verse of scripture that that proves this point is found in Romans chapter nine. And I'm going to invite you to turn there if you have your copy of scripture. Romans chapter nine. And I want to look at verses 10 through 13. Romans chapter nine. Verses 10 through 13. Once again, that's Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And these are the words of the Apostle Paul, in particular talking about the subject of election. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. This is God's holy word. And again, I will read it with emphasis. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. And we know those are Jacob and Esau. Now listen to this next part. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to what? Election might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older Esau will serve the younger, that is Jacob. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Now again, beloved, notice what's happening in in this verse, in these verses. Paul makes it clear that when God made his choice of election, Neither Esau nor Jacob had done anything good or bad, nor were they even born. Paul goes out of his way to say that. And adding to the amazement of this truth, by the way, is that the one whom God chose, namely Jacob, he hardly turned out to be a class act, if you recall. I mean, he conned Esau out of his birthright. He he tricked his father in order to steal the blessing which belonged to his brother. And then later on, he caused division between his own children by giving one of his kids a coat. So in essence, I think we can rule out the fact that God chose Jacob because he was a pillar to society. That wasn't the case. No, beloved, Paul makes it very clear that the reason why Jacob was chosen was so that God's purpose in election might stand. In short, God saved Jacob because it was in his sovereign will and purpose to do so. And it was not based on anything Jacob was or who Jacob was or what he actually did. You know, I remember when I was in, I remember my middle and high school friend rather named Andre 
when he connected with me on Facebook. And when he looked at my profile and instantly remembered how I was in Midland High School, he responded with me, in particular when he saw that I was a minister, he responded with the idea of, that's crazy. He told me, that's crazy. To which I said, I agree. But then he went on and said, what's even crazier than me being a minister was that now he was one. To which I said, I agree. Because if you knew Andre like I did, but that's another message. But in recalling this, it serves to remind me again that God did not grant me nor Andre salvation, nor the calling he gave us because of us. But rather it was in spite of us. Because again, he planned it before the foundation of the world which means he designed it before Andre and I did the crazy things that we did during that time. And this is ultimately the beauty found in God's sovereign election, beloved, that God foreknows his people fallen condition and he foreknows our love for sin and natural hatred of him. And yet he still finds delight in pouring out his grace and his mercy upon us. And the fact that he does this only testifies to the loving and caring nature that's rooted inside of him. So as we've seen in this verse, total depravity and unconditional election, again, are very scriptural in their makeup. But then just as scriptural is the third point in the doctrines of grace, which again is the most controversial of all of them, namely limited atonement. So again, let's look at verse 44 one more time. It reads, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him. Now, who's that him? The one that's drawn up on the last day. Now, in order to see the doctrine of limited atonement more clearly here, we need to make two observations. First of all, notice again that it is the father who draws the person to Christ. And by virtue of coming to Christ, the person becomes a receiver of his atoning work and blessings for him, which includes, by the way, being raised by Christ on the last day, which is in the verse. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that his work of atonement, as well as the blessings that come from it, will be 100% effective for the one that is drawn by the Father. That's what he's saying by that. Now, secondly, on the flip side of this, Jesus is also indirectly saying that those who are not drawn will not become bishop beneficiaries of his atoning work and blessings. So in essence, here's what we can conclude, that the effects of the atoning work and blessings of Christ are restricted to the ones that are drawn. That's what's in the passage. In short, Jesus is making it plain that his atoning work will not be a wasted work. So to put this as plain as I can, if Jesus' atoning work was intended for everyone, then you know what would happen? Everyone would be saved. That's simple. And since we know everyone is not saved, then we are left to conclude that his atoning work was designed for particular individuals, namely God's elect. And again, this work of Christ that is given to these particular individuals will be a definite work. 
it will not make salvation only possible, but even more, it fully saves them 100%. So if I could put it in this vernacular, not only has Jesus made a way out of no way, but he's also successfully brought us through the way that he made. Now, again, given the fact that this doctrine is the most controversial of the five, I want to look at a few passages, and I want you to join me in doing so, um, that, that I think prove this doctrine in both the particular and definite nature of the atoning work of Christ. So we're going to look at a few scriptures. First scripture I want to look at is Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And this is um, a passage that we often hear at Christmas time. This is jo- the angel talking to Joseph before Jesus was born. And he's basically telling Joseph, who Jesus will be, okay? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And again, he's speaking about Mary here in particular. He's telling Joseph about what Mary, what will happen with Mary and what Jesus will do. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 reads, She, that is Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now pick up this next line. For he, what? Will save who? His people. Not everyone. His people. From their sins. You see that? He will save his people. From their sins. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. Please turn with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Again, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Again, this is God's holy word. It reads, but God demonstrated his own love towards us. Now, who's the us there? In particular, it's the Roman church directly, but the Roman church is a church. They're believers. So he demonstrates his own love towards us, meaning believers, meaning the elect, and that while we, again, the elect, Worse yet sinners, Christ died for who? Now who's that us again? The church. Okay, not everyone, the church. So we have two verses here, Matthew one twenty one, Romans 5.8, but you still don't believe me, so let's look at Galatians chapter 3. <laughs> Galatians chapter 3, now Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Again, this is God's holy word. Christ redeemed who? Us. Now, who's that us? The audience Paul is writing to, in particular the Galatian church. Believers. Christ redeemed 
us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for who? Us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Are you seeing what we're doing here? You seeing what we're doing here? Okay, one more verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. This is God's holy word. For by one offering, and that offering in context is the atoning work of Christ, he has perfect. Now, ED is at the end of this word. What does that mean? Past tense. It's done. It's finished. He has perfected. Didn't make it possible. He's done it. For all time, those who are being sanctified. ED at the end. What does that mean again? Past tense. It's a done deal. And notice who it's for. It's for the elect. Now, notice again two things about this verse. One, the particular audience which is being talked to, the elect. And equally notice the definitive work of Christ towards the elect. He perfected us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He died for their sins. He, he saved them by, from sin by his life, etc. So we see again, beloved, that Jesus' work did much more than make salvation possible. But rather, beloved, he successfully accomplished salvation infinitely and infallibly for his people. And this is what limited atonement teaches. And this is why Jesus can give confident assurance to the ones who are drawn to him by the Father, that they will be raised on the last day. Why? Because it is his completed, satisfactory work for them, which will ultimately make that a reality. So again, beloved, limited atonement tells us that the saving work of Christ is restricted to those who are elected. And those who are elected definitely will be saved. So that's limited atonement. Now with this said, it gets us to the fourth point in the doctrines of grace. Namely, irresistible grace. So look back with me again at John chapter 6 verse 44. John chapter 6, verse 44 again. And I'll read it again with emphasis. It reads, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and watch these next two words, I will raise him up on the last day. Again, notice the confident assurance Jesus has in this statement. The ones who are drawn to Jesus by the Father will be raised by Christ on the last day. In other words, they will all come to him and they will all be saved, beloved. And how do we know this? Because they will not be able to resist the drawing power of the Father. In fact, Jesus says this outright seven verses before in John chapter 6, verse 37. Here's the words he says. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Not might, but will come to me. It's guaranteed, beloved. 
Now, in saying this, it's also important to note that God not only will draw those he has chosen, but also he has set a particular time for them to be drawn. And my reason for bringing this up is because many people who hold uh, to the fact that God's drawing grace can be resisted, it, they hold to it largely because they realize that they hear the gospel more than once before they come to saving faith. In fact, if I took a survey of everyone in this room, I can guarantee one thing. That I can actually guarantee two things. One, you did not come to Christ all the same way, and you did not come all the same time. I can guarantee that, okay, no matter what your story is. However, the primary reason why this happens, beloved, has nothing to do really with a person's personal ability to resist God's power. But rather, it's because the Holy Spirit, in many ways, was not pleased at that time, the times that you did reject it, to open your eyes and heart to the message you heard. And the person, beloved, who is in that position will stay blind. They will stay deaf to the message of the gospel until the Spirit does that work. You know, I always found my uncle, late, my, my late uncle, rather, Uncle Hezekiah, who we affectionately call Uncle Bean, uh, a very interesting fellow. He was, he was just an absolutely interesting fellow. He's now gone away, but I always um, reminded of the many times when I was around him, and in particular my Aunt Eldora, who was his wife, who we call, my, call affectionately Aunt Dora. Because just about every time I was around him, and the fact that she knew I was a minister, Aunt Dora always felt this need to somehow highlight her holiness. You know, like she attended church regularly, she helped out with church events. I mean, she was just, I mean, anytime she saw me, I knew that was what's going to happen. But at the same time, she also loved to show how much of a heathen my uncle was. She, he likes to hang out with his buddies. He, he's running from God and he's fighting his call to be a minister. Now, God didn't tell her that, but she just assumes that that's what he was called to do. And thus, because of this, she always asked me on several occasions to speak to my uncle in an effort to try to convince him to come to Christ. And while I had many occasions to do this while he was living, I also informed my aunt that without the drawing power of the spirit, beloved, I could talk to my Uncle Bean until I'm blue in the face. OK, it wouldn't make a bit of difference. However, if God was pleased to open Uncle Bean's eyes and heart to the gospel, Rest assured, there would be nothing he could do to resist the drawing power of the Lord. We can get, we're guaranteed on that. And again, it would come at the exact moment that God wanted it to happen. No sooner, no later. And I say this to encourage those of you who, like my aunt, may desire to see a loved one, a lost family member, a friend, come to salvation. Beloved, if they are a part of God's elect, no matter how long it takes, they will come at his design time for them. God's not going to leave anyone whom he has chosen for salvation outside of his kingdom and away from his grace. You, we are guaranteed about that. Again, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And we can be confident in that promise because when it comes to the drawing power of the Holy Spirit, not only, beloved, is it irresistible, but it's sovereign. It's sovereign. Thus, it is effective to accomplish what it was designed to do. And speaking of God accomplishing what he was designed to do, 
we now come to the final point in the doctrines of grace, namely the P, the point that culminates everything here, and that is the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. Let's read verse 44 one more time. It reads, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and watch this. I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, Jesus is saying those who the father has drawn to me will come and they will persevere. They will be preserved until I raise them on the last day where they will receive the fullness of their salvation and the blessings that come with it. In short, when one receives salvation, true salvation, beloved, they stay saved. Now, I think it's fair to say that if limited atonement is the most controversial doctrine in the doctrines of grace, the perseverance or the preservation of the saints is for some Christians the most enigmatic or difficult to understand. And the reason why this is so is because even after we become Christians, and I think everyone would agree with this, we still face countless struggles and hard situations. In short, beloved, our lives, when we become Christians, don't instantly become a gravy train on biscuit wheels. Okay? And the tendency for some of us is to think that when struggles and hard times occur in our lives, that they somehow equate to the fact that we are apart from God. That's our natural reaction. That somehow God has abandoned us, that he has forgotten us, that, that we're losing the grip on our salvation and that we need to go back to some type of works in order to bring it back. However, beloved, the beauty of the doctrine of the perseverance or the preservation of the saints is that like the other four doctrines that we talked about, it's a doctrine of grace. It's a doctrine of grace. In other words, the reason why we don't need to believe that we're apart from God when tough times come our way, the reason why we don't need to believe that he's abandoned or forgotten about us in the rough seasons of our lives, the reason why we don't have to rely on ourselves to, to get the grip back on our relationship with him during these times, beloved, is because God is not depending on our power to keep us near to him. But rather, beloved, he's relying on his power to do that. And since God is infinitely powerful, then we can rest assured, beloved, that we will be preserved and we will persevere despite whatever difficult season we may be going through. You know, there are many verses that speak to this doctrine, but my personal favorite one is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to invite you to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to look at verses 3 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Once again, that's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Now, in this verse, Peter is encouraging believers that are scattered all over, um, in particular, I believe, Asia Minor. And he's giving him these words. Again, it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. 
Peter says these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, watch this, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead, or from the resurrection rather of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is sovereign election, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who, what are those next lines? Are being what? Guarded, protected through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now in this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed with various trials. These are people who are suffering, beloved. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, Peter's encouragement to believers is this, beloved. Even in your distress, even in the distress of your various trials, there are three things you need to remember. Number one, you still have your hope in Christ. Number two, you still have an imperishable and undefiled inheritance. And number three, you are still being protected by the power of God through faith for salvation. In short, God has not given up on you because you happen to be suffering. That's what he's saying. So in essence, beloved, just as the Christian life guarantees us seasons of walking through various heartaches and trials, it also guarantees that as we go through those things, God's preserving and persevering power will be our constant companion. Because the God who chose us before the beginning, the God who called us while we were totally depraved, and the God who definitely applied the atoning work of Christ to our lives has promised us that we will make it to the end. No matter the situation, no matter the struggle, no matter the setback. Again, beloved, we can take joy in the doctrine of the perseverance or preservation of the saints. Because you know what it's telling us? He that began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So as we've seen, the doctrines of grace are, again, not only real, but they're encouraging and comforting as well. And as we continue to walk this portion in our Christian journey, it should be our constant prayer that God will regularly remind us of these things and to warm our hearts to the glory that awaits us and the fullness of our salvation is actually revealed. That is when we're finally able to be raised up on that great last day. And we're able to worship and praise our God forever and ever. Join me in prayer.